Let's open our Bibles tonight to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25. If you're reading a red-letter edition of the Bible tonight, you'll see that this is all red letters. And Matthew chapter 24 was all red letters. Kind of interesting because this is the second longest discourse in the Bible. The second longest teaching of Jesus in the entire Bible. Can anyone think of the first longest? That would be the Sermon on the Mount. Very good. Gold star for John. Sermon on the Mount takes Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. But this is the second longest discourse. And in kind of digging around a little bit, I found out that the the second coming, the topic, the subject of the second coming, is a pretty hot topic in the New Testament. In fact, um, it's mentioned more than any other topic in the New Testament. The second coming. Christ is coming again. One of the reasons why I pass this handout to you, though, is so that you understand that the second coming of Christ and the rapture of the church are two different events. And if you look at this side of the paper, you'll understand why I say they're two different events. Because in the rapture or the translation, the catching away, some people would say, well, rapture is not even in the Bible. Well, it is if you have a Latin Bible. Um, If you don't have a Latin Bible, the word rapture is not in the Bible, but catching away is in the Bible and certainly the teachings of the catching away of the church, the, the pulling away of the church, are clear in First um, and Second Thessalonians. We covered that in our study already, so I'm not going to go back over that. But I did want to cover the differences between the, the rapture of the church and the second coming so that you see clearly that they're two different events. First of all, in the rapture of the church, look at number one there. It says, the translation of all the believers. In other words, the rapture of all the believers, the catching away of the believers. In the second coming of Christ, there's no translation at all. Christ comes to earth. And he he comes to earth. In the rapture of the church, when it talks about that translation of the catching away, the Bible says, we meet the Lord in the air. Okay? And... And, we, and the saints that have gone before us are already with him. He, they come back with him. We meet them in the air. So, in the second coming, there's no translation at all. Number two, the translated saints go to heaven in the rapture. The translated saints return to earth in the, at the second coming. We're with them. Saints are with them. So, at one point, Jesus comes with his saints, and at another point, he comes for his saints, for the tribulation saints. That would be those that accepted the Lord after the rapture of the church. And also, uh, he comes back for Israel. Okay, Now, in the rapture of the church, the earth is not judged. We talked about the rapture of the church being the, the beginning of what's known as the day of the Lord. We did. I gave you those verses last week on, on the study of the day of the Lord. Hope you had an opportunity to check those out. Um, so the earth is not judged, but at the second coming, the earth is judged and righteousness is established. Okay? 
Number four, the rapture of the church is imminent. That means it could come at any moment. could come at any moment. There's no signs. It's a signless event. Um, however, the second coming follows definite predicted signs, including tribulation. Okay? And by the way, one of the mistakes that people make, and I think this is probably the biggest mistake that people make in terms of trying to determine their eschatology, whether, whether or not the, the tribulation is, uh, whether or not the rapture is pre-tribulation or mid-tribulational or post-tribulational, is that they don't understand that the tribulation is the wrath of God. It's not the wrath of man, and it's not the wrath of the devil. It's the wrath of God. Okay? Now, number five says that the rapture of the church is not mentioned in the Old Testament. I think there are some, um, some hints of the rapture of the church in the Old Testament. One of, they may be veiled. Uh, this happened... I was teaching the Gospel of John in India, and so it was fresh in my mind um, that John writes his Gospel around seven miracles and seven I am statements. And so I came back to the States, and when I got back to the States, I was doing a study in Genesis, and we happened to be covering the, the subject of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you remember, when uh, the angels visited Lot, and the crowds wanted these men to come out because they wanted to have their way with them sexually. It was a perverted society that Lot lived in, and they wanted to have their way with these men sexually. And it got so violent that they came to break down the door. Lot goes out to reason with them, and he's out there on the porch, and he's, he's reasoning with these men, don't do this vile thing. You know, I'll give you my daughters, but don't do this. Don't do this thing. And the Bible says that the angels, the angel reached outside, grabbed Lot, pulled him in the door, and then he smote the wicked with blindness so they couldn't find the door. Now, I probably would have never caught that except that I had just been teaching through the entire Gospel of John while I was over in India, seeing this, the, the, around the seven miracles and the seven I am statements. One of the I am statements that Jesus said is, I am the door. And if you think about the catching away, the Lord pulls us inside the door. We're safe in Jesus. He pulls us inside the door, and it says he smote the wicked with blindness so they couldn't find the door. The Bible tells us in Thessalonians that God is going to send a great delusion, and people are going to believe a lie, believe the lie, and be damned. Now think about that. It's a perfect picture in the Old Testament of the rapture of the church. Um, anyway, it's, this handout says that it's not specifically mentioned, not in the Old Testament, um, but it's predicted often in the Old Testament. There's, that was just one example that I gave you. Um, the rapture is for believers only, and the second coming affects all people. We're going to see that tonight, Matthew 25. Uh, number nine, Christ... Oh, I'm sorry, I missed one. I missed a couple. Number seven, before the day of wrath. The rapture happens before the day of wrath. But the second coming 
concludes the day of wrath. It's at the end of the tribulation. You get it? Number eight. In the rapture of the church, there's no reference to Satan. In the, at the second coming, Satan is bound. He's bound for a thousand years, it tells us, for that thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. Number nine. In the rapture, Christ comes for his own. In the second coming, Christ comes with his own. Number 10, he comes in the air at the rapture, he comes to earth at the second coming. You see all the differences here? Number 11, in the rapture he claims his bride, and in the second coming he comes with his bride. Number 12, in the rapture only his own will see him. At the second coming, every eye will see him. And number 13, the rapture begins, the tribulation begins, and in the second coming, the millennial kingdom begins. Now, on the other side of that page is simply passages pertaining to the rapture of the church, passages pertaining to the second coming of Christ. And if you study that out, you will see that there are distinctions between the rapture of the church and the second coming. If you don't know that, we could go into this study tonight, and if you don't understand that, your end times prophecy, eschatology, your, your end times beliefs will be scrambled eggs. There's no way to understand end times things unless you understand that the rapture of the church and the second coming are two different events. Now, last week in Matthew chapter 24, we noticed how very Jewish these words were. As we were going through chapter 24, we saw so many things that pertain to Israel that don't pertain to us. You can't see, you can't look at Matthew chapter 24 and read the church into Matthew chapter 24 because Jesus is answering the questions of his four disciples on the Mount of Olives and the questions are pertaining to the destruction of the temple, the coming of the Antichrist, the lawless one. Um, it's about the destruction. It's about uh, the last day's events and his second coming. It's not about the rapture of the church. If you read the rapture of the church into Matthew 24, you're going to be in trouble. I mean, again... There's, it's, let me just give you an example. Um, look at verse 15. We covered this last week, but for the sake of those that weren't here, I just want to, want to bounce over this before we get into 25 tonight. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. And then let those who are in Judea. Where's Judea? It's in Israel, isn't it? Okay? Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of his house. He's not talking to roofers here. He's not talking to contractors. Okay, We don't hang out on the roof of our houses, do we? Now, where do they do that? In Israel. This is very Jewish. These passages are very Jewish. First of all, we talked last week about the abomination of desolation. That's the image of the Antichrist setting, set up where? In the temple. In the holy place. Well, there, there is no holy place right now. He can't do that right now. The temple has to be rebuilt. So he's talking about last day's events, and then he says how dreadful it will be. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. Well, what would that have to do with Gentiles? Nothing. 
Okay, so you understand it's very Jewish. Now, chapter 25 is a continuation of this. It's a continuation of Jesus answering these questions. Okay, he's answering these questions that the disciples asked him pertaining to the end of the age, the last days. So what I would like to do is call your attention, first of all, to verse 36 in Matthew 24. Verse 36 in Matthew 24. Because Jesus told them, no one knows about that day or hour. Okay? Now, just we marked that well last week because no one knows the day or the hour. We talked about people who always want to set dates. Jesus is coming back at such and such a date. If somebody sets a date, even if they write a book on it, they're wrong because Jesus is right and whoever says they know the date is wrong. Okay, we can establish that. But this lesson really begins with Matthew 24 and these answers to the question. No one knows the day or the hour. And it continues through these parables that teach his disciples to be ready. Now, there's a couple things I want to go over about parables and, and so that you understand how to take a parable apart. First of all, you need to understand what it is. So if you're taking notes tonight, a parable, it's a short story that uses a physical or a practical example from everyday life to illustrate a spiritual truth. Okay? We talked about it. We broke it down into two words. Para is a Greek word, and it means alongside. And bolo is a Greek word that means to throw. So what Jesus does is he throws alongside something earthly that they'll understand, a spiritual truth, that they might understand the spiritual truth by looking at the earthly truth. Okay? So it's a practical example from everyday life that illustrates a spiritual truth. It's a, in the Bible, it's actually one of the literary uh, forms. So it's a, it's a form that Jesus used to use for teaching. And here's the two reasons he did it. He used parables because a parable would often obscure the truth to those that had a hard heart or those that were unresponsive. It would, it would veil the truth to those who had a hard heart. But at the same time, it would reveal the truth to somebody who had a humble heart or a soft heart. And that's why Jesus did that. If you notice, um, Jesus started teaching in parables in Matthew's Gospel in Matthew chapter 13. Remember the parable of the sower and the seed? That's where he started teaching in parables. If you look at chapter 12, you say, why did Jesus change his teaching style? Because in chapter 12 of Matthew, that's when the, the scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, began to accuse him of doing the work that he was doing by the spirit of the devil, by Beelzebub. And as soon as he did that, Jesus changed his teaching style. He began to teach in parables now, so that those who had tender hearts would understand, but those who had hard hearts wouldn't see even quotes Isaiah pertaining that. So you understand. Now, here's a couple of guidelines, a couple of keys to understanding parables. Um, you want to ask yourself a couple of questions. First one is, what is the occasion for telling the story? What's the occasion for telling the story? In this case, Jesus is describing what it's going to be like in the last days. 
because that's the questions that were asked of him, and it's in that context. It's in a very Jewish context, as we just pointed out. This parable is in a very, uh, it's in a cultural setting. It's in a very Jewish context. It's not in the context of the church. As a matter of fact, when was the church established? In the book of Acts, at Pentecost. The church isn't even established yet. Jesus is dealing with Israel at this point. So what's the occasion for telling this story? And here's another one. What is the explanation of the parable's meaning. You're, you always want to look for the overall meaning in the parable. If you get the overall meaning in the parable, then you're going to understand why Jesus is telling it, and, and you'll understand and you'll be able to identify the details. Now, in a parable, there are details that are relevant and there are details that are irrelevant, and you have to be able to tell the difference between the two. Okay. The most important thing is that you identify the central theme of the parable. So what's Jesus saying here? First of all, he just got done telling them, no one knows the day or the hour. Okay? So this is on the heels of that statement. No one knows the day or the hour. Now, as we look at this parable, keep all those things in mind. First of all, the rapture and the second coming are two different things. We're dealing with the second coming here. We're not dealing with the rapture of the church. We're dealing with the second coming of Jesus. Okay. Also, no man knows the day or the hour, so Jesus is going to teach these guys you need to be ready all the time. All the time. That's what, this, that's what these parables are going to deal with. Now, one more thing I want to point out before we jump in, and that's this. Matthew, Mark, and Luke... We talked about this at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those three Gospels are known as the Synoptic Gospels. This Olivet Discourse is found in all three of those Gospels. It's found in Matthew, it's found in Mark, and it's found in Luke. It's not found in John. Anybody want to take a stab at why it's not found in John? Excellent, excellent. Not a, it's, it's written to the church, isn't it? It's written to the church, which predominantly is, is Gentile in this age. It started out Jewish, but think about this. Turn, turn with me just for a second, because Jesus talks not about the second coming in, his, in, his, um, in the Gospel of John, but he talks about the rapture of the church. Take a look at John chapter 14. All three of the other Gospels in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew and Mark and Luke, Jesus is telling Israel, watch out, don't be deceived. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars and pestilence and earthquakes and famine and all this. And he's laying all this stuff on them. But look at what he says in John 14. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you may be where I am. You understand? This is, this is the church he's talking to. And that's why he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. He doesn't say that to Israel. To Israel he says, watch out, watch out, watch out. Why? Because at this point, their faith is not in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. You understand? Those that are believers, Jesus says, I'm going to pull out. Okay? 
So in John's Gospel, he tells them, I'm going to come and get you and take you to be with me. Okay? And then he goes on to say, you know the way to the place where I'm going. And of course, Thomas says, Lord, we don't know. And he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Now, as we get into chapter 25 tonight, understand that the the separation in these parables has to do with spiritual birth, understand, spiritual life. If you're born again, you're on one side of the issue. If you're not born again, you're on the other. Now, at that time, he's going to tell them a parable now. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. See how Jewish this is? This is not, this is not a church parable. This is a very Jewish parable. And the idea was that these bridesmaids would want to be a part of the ceremony and, and betrothal was, we would call it engagement, but betrothal was much more serious than engagement in that if, if you were betrothed to be married, for example, if I was betrothed to a woman to be married and I wanted to break that betrothal, I'd have to get a divorce. Betrothal was like marriage. Okay? Even though we had no union yet. And if that woman that I was betrothed to was found not to be a virgin on our wedding night, I could divorce her. But it says here, at that time, and he's speaking of in the time frame of the, the second coming, he says, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps, went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. Now, I guess that would be kind of foolish, wouldn't it? Because what good is a lamp without any oil? You know? That's like trying to use a chainsaw to cut down a tree, but you never pull the cord to start it. You know? What, what good is it? You don't have any oil in your lamp? So five were wise and five were foolish. The foolish ones took their lamps but didn't take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. Now, there's a couple things there. Jesus has been gone for a long time, and the Bible says that all of them fell asleep. All of them got drowsy, not just the wise ones, not just the foolish ones, but the wise ones as well. They all got drowsy, and it's easy to do, isn't it? It's easy to get drowsy. However, oil in the scriptures is is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. We're back to John chapter 3 again in that spiritual birth. You know, some of these people were believers, some of them were not. At midnight, the cry rang out, and here's how it worked. The bridegroom could come back for his bride at any time. At any time, he could come back. And they would sound a trumpet, and they would say, The bridegroom cometh, and the bride would come come out, meet the bride. He'd come for his bride and take her. And then there was great celebration. And by the way, weddings were a week-long celebration. It wasn't like a one-day thing or an afternoon thing. It was a huge celebration. 
And it says, at midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And then all the virgins woke up, trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell and buy some for yourselves. Now, that's one of the details in this, in this parable that's one of the irrelevant uh, distinctives in this parable because, of course, you can't, you can't buy or sell salvation, can you? You can't buy your salvation anywhere. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready, and this is the key. Let me say that again. The virgins who were ready. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Do you see the, the key to this parable is the relationship with the Lord? Now, there are going to be people who come to know the Lord during the tribulation time. During the tribulation. It's going to be a bloody time. We looked at that a bit last week. But the difference between the two, between the saved or the lost, was the difference in a relationship. I want you to notice that. It's not about a religion. It's about a relationship. Remember, we're not talking about the rapture of the church here. We're talking about the second coming of Christ. The... uh, These chapters are very Jewish, so you can't read the church into this. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. If you're reading the King James tonight, it says, Wherein the Son of Man cometh. Verse 14, another parable. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents. Now, he's not talking um, about talents like, you know, one guy was good at basketball and one guy was good at football and, and so on and so forth. He's talking about talents of money. These talents, one, one talent was equivalent to about 20 years' wage. So whatever you make a year... Multiply that by 20, that's what one talent would be. Okay? A 20 years wage. To one he gave five talents. That's like a, a, a hundred years wage. Now we're talking about a different economy here. We're not talking, about, oh God, I wish you'd give me that kind of money. You know, that's, that's not the, the idea. Just stay with me. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent according to his ability. Now God knows what our abilities are. He knows the end from the beginning. And you don't have to look at somebody, I don't have to look at somebody, for example, and say, oh boy, I wish I had a ministry that was that big. I've come to the realization, I think it was Gail Irwin that kind of rattled my cage one day when he said, if God's given you two people to minister to, it's too, too many. It's two more than you deserve to be leading. You know, so, 
And then you look at the, the you know these guys who are in these huge coliseums. If you want to think about it in, in, in terms of somebody having a ministry that fills a huge coliseum, it's still a speck of dust compared to God. You understand what I'm saying? So it's not about, you can't go, well, I wish I had this or I wish I had that. No, God gives to each one whatever his ability, to, according to his ability. And then he went on his journey. So he gives out these talents and then he goes away. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also, the one with the two talents gained two more. But the man who had received one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Now, the last parable that we looked at, the central theme of the thing was be ready. Be ready. Okay? This one is a lesson on faithfulness. Okay? The central theme of this parable is faithfulness. Are you faithful with what God has given you? Some he's given five, some he's given two, some he's given one. But watch what happens. The one who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and he hid his master's money. After a long time, now that kind of correlates with the last parable. The master went away for a long time. And, it, you know, the disciples, when I look at these guys, they were, you listen to Paul's preaching, and he expected the Lord to come back in his lifetime. He had no idea that there were going to be a couple thousand years between the first coming and the second coming. And I think that was by God's design. I think God wants every one of us to live with that sense of urgency that the Lord's coming back, the Lord's coming back, the Lord's coming back. When I, and I've heard ministers say, you know, we're not living in the last days. Well, I feel bad for them at that point because God wants us living with that sense of urgency. And for many who are debating the rapture of the church, whether it's pre-trib or mid-trib or post-trib, you know, if a guy dies, hey, that's his rapture. You know, I mean, he's. Remember when Walter Martin died, and Chuck Missler came to the conference, and he said, "What? Walter's pre-trib now? You know, because he's with the Lord. You know, so you can you can get into all these fine details, and I think it's good. I think it's good to study it out. I think it's important to be able to distinguish between the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ. I think it's important to know that there's a difference between the church and Israel. The first key that I got was. Uh, was in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read one verse in there. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul says in verse 31, he's speaking of um, you know the freedom that believers have in eating different foods and stuff. And he says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. So now there's... There's three groups. There used to be just two groups, Jews and Gentiles. Now there's Jews and Greeks and the church, which is made up of Jews and Gentiles. So Paul gives us the distinction that, hey, there's different groups. There's Jews, there's Greeks, and there's the church made up of Jews and Greeks. I think it's important to know those things, but, but in the, at this point, we see a couple of correlations there. First of all, he's gone for a long time. After a long time, the master of those servants returned, and he settled his accounts. He settled his accounts. Now I want you to know something. The Lord is going to settle accounts with us, with each one of us. 
We're going to be rewarded according to what we have done. But you need to be able to distinguish, once again, between rewards and salvation. Salvation is not a reward, is it? It's a gift. It's a gift. It's not a reward. You don't get salvation, you don't gain salvation by doing anything. You understand? It's a, you put your faith in Jesus and it's a free gift. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Jesus told us in John chapter 3, probably one of the most famous scriptures in all the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish and have everlasting life. And the idea is it's the gift of eternal life. It's not a reward. But there's a reward for labors. Let me give you an example. Turn with me this time to um, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is talking about, I'm going to start with... um, I'm going to start with verse 9 in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And Paul is going to talk a little bit about the building materials that you're building with. It's not about salvation now, let me remind you. It's not about salvation. This is about the rewards for your labors in Christ. Okay, It's different and distinct from salvation. Verse 9 says, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Christ Jesus. You understand? Faith in Christ Jesus is the foundation stone. That's the spiritual birth. But Paul's saying, okay, now be careful what you're building with. What are you building on that foundation with? Look at verse uh, 12. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is. Because the day, and that's a reference to the day of the Lord, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved but only as one escaping through the flames. Do you understand? He's not talking about salvation there. He's talking about being judged, having your works judged. But what are you building with? Is it gold? Is it silver? Is it precious stones? Or is it wood, hay, and stubble? If you build on Christ with pure motives, there are rewards. But some are trying to do it Do it by works, okay? Now, there's a couple other references that I want to look at that refer to the Bema Seat of Christ, and that's what this is referring to, the Bema Seat Judgment, which all believers will be present at the Bema Seat Judgment. The one judgment we get to to skip, the one we miss, is the White Throne Judgment. That's for unbelievers, okay? Found in Revelation chapter 20. That's the one where if your name's not written down in the Lamb's Book of Life, you'll be at that judgment, and that's where the unbelievers are thrown into the lake of fire. So we're not there. This is not talking about that. However, this time turn with me to um, 
2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is good too because you're going to get some, some information on our heavenly dwellings. Paul refers to these bodies as tents and he refers to our new bodies as mansions. But listen to this with verse 1. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven not built by human hands. Meanwhile we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. There's where it starts. It starts with you putting your faith in Jesus Christ, receiving the Holy Spirit. It's a seal. It's the down payment, Paul tells us in Ephesians. And here he goes on, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith not by sight. If you're living by faith today, you can go through any circumstance that the world or the devil throw at you, or the flesh throws at you, if you're walking by faith. If you're walking by sight, man, you need to change your walk. You need to, you need to walk by faith. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So, when you die, when this when, when this tent is vacated when you die you're present with the Lord you're present with the Lord Paul teaches us to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord so we make it our goal to please him whether we are at home in the body or away from it for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that's that bema seat the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body whether good or bad so you understand now as we're looking at this parable we're looking at this parable these guys are given different amounts different talents and let's go back there for a second we got one more thing we're going to check out in the bema seat but let's go back to the parable for a second after a long time, verse 19, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with him. We're going to settle accounts with the Lord at some point. We're going to settle up accounts. So that's something to keep in mind as we go through this life. They settled accounts with him. The man who had received five talents brought the other, fi brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. Now, I want you to make a note of that because the Lord's going to say one of two things to us when he meets us. One response would be, Well done, good and faithful servant. The other response would be, Go away from me. I never knew you. All right? Both having to do with relationship. Okay? Here he says, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came, master. He said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I've gained two more. And his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Now, now look at there. 
They were given different talents, different amounts. But they both had a return on their investment because they put their heart into it. They knew the Lord and they served the Lord with everything that they had. But this next guy, it's a different story. Verse 24, Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. Kind of reminds me of before I was a believer and how I was brought up in a church that taught that God was mean and, and he was hard and he was a taskmaster and boy, he was just waiting for me to mess up because he was going to punish me. And he was watching me. He never took his eyes off me because I was going to mess up at some point and he was going to take me out. It sounds like the attitude of, of maybe even a good churchgoer but somebody who doesn't have a relationship with the Lord. I was afraid. I knew you were hard. You're hard. Man, if that's your impression of God, you need to spend more time with Him. That's not the God I know. That's not the God I know. I, I think this guy was an unbeliever. And this really plays out because you don't work your way to salvation, do you? It's not about working your way to salvation. These guys aren't accepted of God because of, oh, they did nice work. Oh, good work. We're going to see that in the next in the next account too. Well, so it says, so I was afraid I went out and I hid your talent in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. Now look at the Lord's response. Look at the, the master. His master replied in verse 26, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvested where I've not sown and gather where I've not scattered seed? Hmm. I think this really, the picture that came to my mind when it started talking about sowing and reaping was that parable of the sower and the seed. And remember Jesus said, how are you, how are you guys going to understand any parable if you don't understand this parable? The seed was his word. And the seed went out and the soil were the different conditions of the heart. And the heart that was hard couldn't receive the seed. And I don't think this guy ever received the seed. I don't think he was ever born again because look at his response. He, he was afraid he hid it. And the Lord says, Well then, you should have put my money on deposit where the bankers, with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. So even what this guy had, he lost. Even what he had, he lost. You remember in the parable of the sower and the seed in Matthew 13, that some gave an increase 30-fold, some gave an increase 60-fold, and some gave an increase 100-fold. That was the, the whole idea of the parable was sowing God's word and watching it grow in people's lives who had tender hearts. This guy didn't get it. It didn't take any root. So it says, it says, Take the talent from him, give it to the one who has ten talents, for everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The weeping and the gnashing of teeth? Boy, that's tied right in with the white throne judgment. This guy was not a believer. 
in the context, this very Jewish context that Jesus is talking to, and, and remember, it was Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Mark gives us the four names. He, he, he names them in his gospel. When he talks about the Olivet Discourse, he names them. They were Peter, James, John, and Andrew. And Jesus is still answering these questions about his second coming. And in the response about the second coming, he says, when the Son of Man comes. Now, if you're one that marks in your Bible, circle that word when. And notice that it doesn't say if the Son of Man comes. All right? I want you to know you can take this to the bank. The Son of Man will come. There will be a second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory. Now, this is an earthly throne. The glory is heavenly. But He's talking about sitting on His earthly throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him. You notice all the nations will be gathered before Him. Now, we're talking believers and unbelievers here because all the nations are gathered. And I want you to understand about the judgment here and the separation of the sheep and the goats. He's separating people. The sheep and the goats are people. They're not animals. Look carefully. It says, All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people, not the angels, not the nations. He'll separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now, I think there's some analogies in here, but I'm not so sure that this is a parable. I think there's some great analogies going on here. But notice that this portion of, of Scripture, doesn't, it's, it's not talking about um, this will be like that. Jesus said this is going to happen. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He'll sit on His throne. Now He's describing the earthly kingdom. He'll separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right, the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I was naked, I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a, a stranger and invite you in or, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison? And go to visit you. Then the king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatsoever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine. Again, this is very Jewish. The nations here are being judged for how they treated Israel during the tribulation. Listen carefully. The king will reply, what have you done? What have you done to these my, my brothers, these brothers of mine? Whatever you did for these brothers of mine, you did for me. Now, I look at that and I go, Jesus takes very personally what people do to his kids. He takes that very personally. And I want you to understand that the separation of the people, according to what they had done, is it's not some kind of new gospel of works. 
Okay? And a lot of times when this, when chapter 25 is taken out of its context and preached to the church, it's done in a way that, that it sounds like a works doctrine. Well, you know what? I, I go and, and I visit people at the hospital all the time because Jesus said that I should do that. And if I do that, then he'll accept me. Now be careful of that. This is not a new gospel of works. Jesus comes back to the earth. And you remember what the tribulation was like. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble. God's going to separate these nations according to how they dealt with Israel. He's going to separate the people. And if they so much as gave him a drink of cold water when they couldn't get any water because they didn't have a mark on their right hand or their forehead, it's going to be impossible to live during those times. But some people are going to survive the tribulation because the Lord's going to come back. Of course, the Lord says if, if, the, if the days hadn't been shortened, there wouldn't be anybody to save because they just destroy the whole, the whole earth. But the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatsoever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Now, notice that the people that were doing these things didn't really even look at it as a big deal. They were like, well, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or naked or you know, needing help or, or whatever? They weren't doing these things for, for the reward. But I want to read through the, other, the, the separation. I want to read through the other people and then I've got a question for you. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now notice something there, that hellfire was never prepared for people. Because you're going to get this question from some people, how could a loving God create hell? Well, I want you to know that God didn't create hell for people. It says right here in Matthew chapter 25, and verse 41, then he will, he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. That's what hell's prepared for. You've got really, you to really want to go to hell. You have to, really, you have to really work to get to hell. You understand what I'm saying? I, I mean, God provided the means by which you and I were never designed for hell. The devil and his angels, that's what hell was prepared for. Man goes there because he rebels and he follows the deceiver. So there you have it. It's prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't invite me in. I needed clothes, you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison, you didn't look after me. And they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or, or sick or in prison and, and did not help you? And he will reply, verse 45, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Now, the question again, how did you treat my brothers how'd you treat my brothers and I look at even in the church today there's so much anti-semitism in the church today when I hear Rome for example calling themselves the holy city of God do you realize that that, that title is reserved for Jerusalem not wrong. 
It's reserved for Jerusalem. When you begin to start usurping those kind of titles and saying, this is ours, and, and how did you treat my brothers? Let's go all the way back just for a second because I, I, I look at it this way. What's the line that divides people into two camps? You see there's a line here, right? There's sheep, there's goats. What line divides the, the two camps here? There's blessing and there's cursing. But what's the line that divides? Who does God bless and who does he curse? Well, let's flash all the way back to the book of Genesis. Let's go all the way back to the beginning. And look at Genesis chapter 12. I think you're probably in your mind's eye and in your heart you're already there. You're already, you're, you already know where I'm going with this. Genesis chapter 12, I'm going to read the first three verses. Mark this well, because chapter 25 in Matthew's gospel is the judgment of the nations as to how they treated Israel. And the Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those that bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. Do you see the dividing line between the blessing and the curse in Matthew chapter 25? I'll bless those that bless you, and I'll curse them that curse you. Now you understand that during the tribulation, Israel is going to be so hated by the world. And there will be those with tender hearts, there will be those who will aid them. As a matter of fact, we, we learn as we, you know, in our study in Isaiah and, and some of the places where we started looking into Basra or Petra. Last week we talked about um, Jesus saying, you know, when you see the abomination of desolation as spoken of by Daniel the prophet, flee to the mountains. Well, he's talking about the walled city of Petra. He's talking about Moab and Edom and Ammon. And it's interesting to note that during the tribulation, that's the only place in the entire world that the Antichrist doesn't control. It's almost like he doesn't even know it's there. It's almost like he doesn't even know it exists. It's weird when you read about it in Scripture. And they're protected. It's in Jordan. We went there. We saw it. But what's the line that divides the people into two camps? There's blessing and there's cursing. The line that divides, who does God bless? Who does he curse? He told us all the way back in Genesis, I'll bless those that bless you, Abram, who was the father of Israel. I'll bless them that bless you and I'll curse them that curse you. And we see it come down here because he said, to those who took care of my brothers, the Lord says, I got a place prepared for you in the foundation of the world. But to those who didn't, he says, go away to eternal punishment. <laughs> I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. So again, this isn't some kind of new gospel of works. And a lot of people want to paint it into that. You know, they'll, they'll say, well, you know, I... I take care of uh, you know orphans and widows and I tithe and I this and that and the other. You can do all those things and still be lost as a rock. 
Okay? There's a place prepared. There's a division here. I got time to go into 26 just a little bit, and I, I, I guess I, I want to do that. Um, when, Je- when Jesus had finished saying all these things, all what things? Well, this Olivet Discourse, and I suggest if you weren't here for Matthew 24 or 23 and 24, you might want to go back and, and listen to those tapes because they're foundational to what we did tonight. Maybe you're saying, well, how, you know, how are you getting, this is a kind of a different twist on this whole thing, and I, I, I really don't understand you know, what you're saying. Last week I had some questions on the, the two men in the field and the two women grinding at the hand mill. Well, however you want to look at that, because some people put the, the rapture of the church in there. I don't think that's the rapture of the church. I think that's a coming back and a separation unto judgment. But however you want to look at that, don't, don't let it um, cloud the main issue. And the main issue is this. No matter how close you are to another individual, that doesn't guarantee you the same destiny. Okay? You understand what I'm saying? Um, if you're saved, it's because you've put your faith in Jesus Christ. And I look around this room tonight and I know that you've done that because I know you personally. Um, but if you haven't done that, um, the, here's this whole, the whole debate goes on, you know, about the Calvinism, Arminian thing, you know, well, God is sovereign and he, you know, he knows the end from the beginning and the elect and all that. We talked about the elect a little bit last week too. And, and you say, well, it's not fair, you know, for God to elect some and not elect some, some others. Well, the idea is this. If you haven't taken the time to ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, then do that. You know, if you're listening by tape, stop the tape. Ask the Lord into your life. It's as simple as that prayer that the thief on the cross prayed. Jesus, I deserve to be hanging here. You don't deserve to be hanging here. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's a pretty simple prayer. We deserve to go to the cross. Jesus didn't. He did that for us. In recognizing that and in asking Jesus to be his Savior, Jesus looked at him and said, This day you'll be with me in paradise. He received that man unto himself just because of that simple act of faith. But now if you've done that, then guess what? At the end of all things, you'll find out that you were one of the elect. Isn't that awesome? So people say, well, you know, it's not fair. Well, it is fair. Because on the other hand, if you don't accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then at some point, you know, maybe the Lord's going to just hit the rewind button and look back to tonight and say, well, what about it? You had the opportunity to pray and ask the Lord to, to, to come into your life and, and, and you, you refused to do it because your heart was cold. You were calloused and you didn't do it. So don't tell me that it's not fair that you're not one of the elect. God knows the end from the beginning. That's quite an advantage. So here we have these, these parables explained. Uh, the, again, the difference is, are you born again? How does that happen? Put your faith in Jesus. Well, now after these things, after these things, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away. And the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Now, he's foretelling again what's going to happen. He's telling them what's going to happen. It kind of strikes me as funny because he says, as you know, I don't think they did know. I don't think they still knew. I think they were still, you know, what? why does he keep saying that, you know? 
Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. Um, understand that, that Caiaphas, I mean, it refers to him as a high priest, but Caiaphas was really the puppet of Rome. He was the, he was the Roman puppet. The, uh, the high priest was actually Annas. But Caiaphas here. And, and they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him. But not during the feast, they said. Or there may be a riot among the people. See, the, the feast of Passover was a celebration of Israel being set free from the bondage to Egypt. Okay, that's what the whole thing was. And it was one of the feasts of obligation. Every Jewish male would have to get to Jerusalem, celebrate the Passover. And so it was a hustle-bustle thing. There were a lot of people around, and it was a big feast that was going on. And they said, well, we don't want to upset the cart there, but this, that's the plot, and Jesus is letting his disciples in on that. Okay. Now, while Jesus was in Bethany, you know that Jesus frequented Bethany. It was the house of Mary and Martha and, and Lazarus. And if you guys want to investigate this on, the own, on your own, a good place to look would be um, chapter 12 of the Gospel of John, um, because it's also mentioned there. We're not going to do that tonight because we're going to wrap up now. But I just wanted to get into chapter 26 a little bit because while Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of a man known as Simon the leper. Now, it's kind of cool that he's known as Simon the leper because it tells me a couple things. He used to be a leper. Okay? Because if he was still a leper, he wouldn't be in his home. And he wouldn't be inviting people over for dinner. You understand what I'm saying? This guy used to be a leper. And, and it doesn't... I mean, Matthew doesn't come right out and say that, but it's obvious to us because if he was still a leper... He, he wouldn't be inviting people over for dinner because, first of all, they wouldn't come, and, and, and secondly, well, Jesus probably would have. But, um, but if you look at John chapter 12, you'll see that it's an interesting dinner. You look at some of the other guests. Lazarus was there. Well, he used to be dead. <laughs> you know, now he's alive. Now you've got a leper who used to be a leper, but now he's clean. I mean, this is quite a group. This is a cool dinner. And you've got, uh, you got a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. Um, this is identified in John's Gospel as, as uh, Mary, the sister of Martha. Okay, So you got Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Martha, who used to be you know, just really high strung and, and, uh, and, and you remember she's the one that came to Jesus and said, won't you tell my sister to, to, to give me a hand here and but every time you see Mary, it's really cool because Mary's always at Jesus' feet. He's always at Jesus' feet. When Martha was all uptight and saying, how come she's not helping me? Where was Mary? At Jesus' feet. Now here she is again at Jesus' feet. She fell at Jesus' feet when Jesus came after Lazarus died. She fell at his feet. She was always at Jesus' feet. It was just such a cool, a cool place for her to be. A woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table, now that's kind of interesting, and next week when we get into the Lord's Supper, you're going to see um, that they reclined at the table. Not on Lazy Boys or anything like that, but they had low tables, and, and they would uh, lean on one elbow, eat with the other hand, and they'd, kind of, they'd be stretched out. They'd recline. We'll talk about that a little next week. But um, she poured on his head while he was reclined at the table, when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Now, these guys got upset. Um, 
it, it doesn't really show up here, but when you look at it in John's Gospel, which is a little more complete account of what was going on, this expensive perfume, like Matthew calls it, very expensive perfume, was worth a year's wage. Now, I'm asking a couple of questions at this point. Why didn't Mary use this on her brother? Her brother died. She had this. She didn't use it on him. She saved it for Jesus. Something's going on here. Something really cool is going on here. She poured it on his head. The disciples saw it. They were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. Now, when you get into John's Gospel, again, if you investigate this on your own, you're going to find out that the one who instigated this was Judas, the guy who's holding the purse strings. Okay? This is a year's wage we're talking here. That money would have gone into the purse and I could have had my hands on it. So Jesus, so Judas starts this and all the disciples pick up on it. And what, Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Sounds good on the surface, except John points out that Judas is a crook and the only reason he said it was because he wanted to get his hands on it on the money. Now aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. And when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Boy, he's really laying it out for him. He, he just told them, I got to go to, to Jerusalem and I'm going to be crucified. And, and this, these are my burial spices. She did this to anoint me for my burial. I tell you the truth. Wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And you know what? We're fulfilling that prophecy right here tonight. Because we're, ta we're talking about how Mary took this alabaster jar, broke it, anointed Jesus for his burial. We're talking about her tonight. And Jesus said, every place the gospel is preached, that this is going to be told as a testimony to her. No. Now, just in comparison to what was going on there, we'll cover these next couple of verses and then we'll, and then we'll call it for tonight. Then, one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, um, his last name is really, um, uh, you know, the last names of people were generally um, either who they were related to or where they were from. And he was from Kerioth. And, and so um, Judas Iscariot, that's where his name comes from. It would kind of be kind of like saying Jesus of Nazareth, identified by where they were from, or son of so-and-so was another way they identified. Um, he went to the chief priest and he asked, what are you willing to give me if I hand them over to you? Now I just want you in closing to take a look at two hearts here. Here you have Mary, who's willing to save this perfume for the Lord. Anoint him for his burial. It's worth a year's wage and she's willing to just give it of her own accord. Not as a show, not because she wants to be somebody, not because she wanted her name mentioned every time the gospel was mentioned. None of that. None of that. Just out of her heart gives this love offering and then next we see the heart of this guy who's, what can I get? What do you give me? What do you give me? And really, that's the dividing line in the heart of man. There's givers and there's takers in this world. And look at what he says. Well, what are you willing to give me if I hand them over to you? So they counted out for him 30 silver coins. Wow. 
Now I look at a, what's an average year's wage? What's an average year's wage? Even in a little town, even in a little place like this, you know, what, 20,000, 20,000 bucks, 30,000 average? You know, Mary's willing to give that and, and this guy, 30 silver coins, 30 silver coins. That's what Jesus' life is worth to you, Judas. So they counted out for him 30 silver coins. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. That's kind of a, a crazy place to stop. But I think that it can be a real place of inventory for each of us. And all that we've read tonight, and all that we've studied tonight, I look at these these parables and and what's the Lord saying? What's what was the Lord what was the message that the Lord was trying to get to Peter, James, John, Andrew? Be ready, watch and pray. Watch, be ready, pray. The parable of the 10 virgins. <laughs> be ready. The talents are you being faithful? The sheep and goats, how are you treating Israel? And now the plot against Jesus. You got some that want to anoint him and follow him, and you got others because they don't recognize him, want to betray him and hand him over. Father, as we close this study tonight, I, I pray that you would use your word in our hearts, Lord. We know that you've talked to us about coming like a thief in the night, and yet at the same time, Lord, we, we studied last week that you're not coming as a thief in the night for those that believe in you, but it's sure going to seem like a thief in the night for those who weren't ready. And at the same time, Father, we want to be faithful. We want to be good ambassadors. We want to understand why we're still here. You've got a plan. Lord, we want to be faithful. And we want to build on the foundation of Jesus with pure motives. Lord, teach us how to love. We didn't come here tonight, Father, to get more knowledge. Because knowledge just puffs up. But love builds up, Lord. And we pray that you teach us how to love. Teach us how to love our neighbors and our friends and relatives and co-workers. And teach us how to reach out to them, Lord, the precious gospel. For we know that it's your power unto salvation. Lord, help us to remain faithful. And help us to look at every new day as an opportunity to be your ambassadors here. We give you this night. We give you our hearts and lives. And we ask that you would be, Lord, of every area of our life. In Jesus' name, amen.